You are listening to Proof Text, a Glossa House podcast exploring scripture with Dr. T. Michael W. Halcombe and Dr. Frederick J. Long. Welcome and enjoy. Welcome, everybody, to Proof Text. This is a podcast dedicated to scripture and theology and all kinds of things. We talk about the text and Greek and, and things of God. I'm Fred Long, and I'm with my good friend, Michael Halcombe. How are you doing, Michael? I'm all right. Yeah. So on, on the docket today, I think we're going to try for three verses. Am I right? Yeah. Verse 25. We're in, we're in Galatians 3, 23 to 25. And if you have a Greek Testament, you might want to open that up if you want to follow along. We'll work on 23 and they'll take a break and look at 24 and 25. And uh, we'll start with Michael. If you could read the text and then we'll translate it and talk about mm-hmm. it. So Galatians All right. Great. Ooh, that was yeah. like that one had some tongue twisters in it. They got uh three or four words that are pretty long there and when you get those uh fees and rows together with thetas, oh man, look at that ephrurumetha, and then you have apokalyphthene, you have synclio menu. Yeah, yeah, those are some big tongue twisty words there. Yeah, yeah, the ephrurumetha, <laughs> ephrurumetha. Uh, that one sounded great. Um, and that's an imperfect tense verb, very significant. We'll look at that. So to translate this, uh, we look for the connector, uh, which is de. So this is marking new development. And then you have a special construction with pro to elthene before coming, before the coming. And now what is the coming? Well, the coming is actually faith, tain pistine. This is a construction where uh, the infinitive takes an accusative of reference we often call it the subject of the infinitive clause, but really it's an accusative reference. As the subject of the infinitive, uh, we take that that way. It's, it's setting up a subordinate clause with pro, and pro is meaning before. So before faith came. So faith is, is seen as an event that can come. So the faith event. So before the faith came, and I, I do think the word pistis is sometimes capital F, the faith. So before the faith came, we were being held. We were being, what, confined or detained under law, under the law. Yeah. And so we have an imperfect verb there, the ephrurumitha is imperfect tense, which which suggests ongoing action in the past. We were being held under law. And then it said, um, then you have this participle, post-positioned, which explains more details about what that being held looked like, confined for the about-to-be-revealed faith for the faith that was about to be revealed. Yeah. So this verb, su clio, 
sunkleo is that we just encountered that verb mm-hmm. in verse 22. So scripture confined all things under sin. And, um, and so this is kind of a condition that people were in until, you know, before faith came. That's what Paul's saying. Before faith came, we were being held under the law. So you're translating that Ephrurumitha as held. Being confined or detained. Confined. Yeah. So, I mean, what about the more positive aspect of it, guarded or protected? Yeah, we could do that. Yeah. I mean, that, that puts a completely different spin on how we think about the law. We, I, yeah. we can we can use a more negative term or a more positive one. I yeah. I tend toward the positive, and I I think that goes along with what Paul how he's going to use an analogy later about uh, sort of the law being our our guardian that kind of thing you know. But yeah, um, except that it's explained by this verb sunclio which mm-hmm. we just had in verse 22, which seems to be confining or imprisoning. Yeah, that's why I wonder if, if the tapanda uh, is, is not referring to something specific or like in general, not, not specific. Okay, just, I, know it's a, I know it's a generic yeah. term, but yeah. instead of seeing it as a, an umbrella, like in everything yeah. in the universe, might it be referring to something actually more general yet specific. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the question. What is tapanta of verse 22? We talked about that as being neuter plural. I mean, it's possible that that could be functioning adverbally, simply like entirely. Scripture entirely confined us, implied under sin. Hmm. But we're, we, we're, we'd have to supply that that um us but you know it is kind of weird to have it neutered plural so yeah. maybe that is the that is the better way to take it just meaning entirely like we were entirely confined under sin or locked up or imprisoned so yeah um in verse 23 though what which which what makes me think that the ephrurumitha ephrurumitha is is negative is because we're locked up, we're imprisoned. That that participle that comes afterwards is explaining more what that looks like. We're confined. Confined could be more neutral, not not necessarily imprisoned. But is there some positive sense of being hemmed in or enclosed? I guess there could be in the sense that we know that we're all in the same boat, you know, and it should lead to kind of a humility. And we're like, well, we're all kind of stuck in here. We can't do anything about it. And um, we're kind of all underneath the law, um, trying to abide by it, but we can't. And we're punished by the law because if we don't obey it completely, we know that we're going to be kicked off the land and we have been, we're looking for a restoration and it hasn't happened yet. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, it'd be nice if it were more positive. <laughs> I'm just having a hard time seeing it. 
I'm just having a hard time seeing that as positive. Well, so for me, it all comes back to what is Taponda mean in 22. So let me let me try to flesh out an argument here real quick. Okay. Um, all right. So if we go back to 21, right? We we have the hypothetical there in 21b. Uh, essentially, we're we're talking about the uh, uh, the law for if a law uh, was given that was able to make alive uh, actually by a law that would have been righteousness. So, in other words, we're talking about uh, humans who would be made alive and who would be righteous were the law were a law given that we're able to do that. As it stands, that there's no such thing in Paul's mind. A law that is able to impart life, to be life-giving, or yeah. to make righteous. Instead, 22, the scripture um, enclosed or locked up all those who would be imparted life and would be righteous under sin until... The allegiant one, Jesus Christ, came and extended his allegiance to us, 23. And before the coming of Jesus, we were being protected by the law um, un until he came. Like it was a guardian, a guideline um, until that future allegiance of Jesus uh, was revealed to us, and then we could believe or be allegiant, which would then be life-giving and make us righteous. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I kind of can see that. I would say that there's a limited function of the law. The law is delimiting. Uh, the law is, I think, and I think we're going we're gonna to see in verse 24 a, an actual consequence of what the law was for. Um, but we don't go there yet because we're going to do that after the break. But I think the law had a purpose for us. It, it was a revelatory and educational purpose. I agree with that. That's why yeah. I don't think it's supposed to be trans interpreted negatively here. Yeah. it's hold um, We're kind of in this holding pattern, though. We're kind of in this holding, confined pattern. So somehow to understand this in a way that it's not ideal, but it's the best thing possible, it's constraining. It's constraining us, guarding us, maybe positively. Yes. Uh, but keeping us together, even yeah. though that togetherness is not ideal. It's kind of like corralling a bunch of cats. Or something like that. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I think the 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 sequence I've laid out there it makes sense in my brain um, mm -hmm. that the tapanda is referring back to those who could have been hypothetically life given or righteous, mm -hmm. yet yeah. were not able to because they were. Enclosed, enclosed by sin, which the law mm -hmm. revealed, yet guarded them and guided them until the allegiant one came and was able to extend his allegiance to us. Um, 
I think I think that's Paul's train of thought. I could be wrong, but yeah, uh, yeah. I I would want to hold back the possibility that Tapanta has broader scope than just the potential yeah. ones. Yeah, I can see that. To include cosmic forces, even. Yeah, that Michael leads to Biden. a very different. Yeah, it leads to a very different interpretation. Well, yeah. it just it just broadens out the scope of the saving activity of the gospel. And I think there are other passages in Paul where that is elaborated. So you have, you know, some places where Paul is speaking compactly and other places where he's unpacking that elaboratively. If you go to Colossians and Ephesians, he's unpacking, uh, talking about these broader kinds of powers in the heavenly realms, you know, evil, evil powers who presumably are being somehow affected by all of this. Peter talks about that as well. But, and I think, I think as we keep looking at the context, he's going to be talking about you were held captive by those who were not gods. Mm. Um, you were, yeah, you were enslaved by Nate. So if you go to four, eight, but at that time, not knowing God, you were enslaved to the ones who are not by nature God. Mm-hmm. But now knowing God, rather being known by God, how is it that you're submitting again to the weak and beggarly principles to which, again, you give yourselves to be servants? So you want to be uh, enslaved again. So there is, and, and by the way, those um, the weak and beggarly stikea, stikea, that's neuter, neuter plural. So I think... I want to leave that open, but but yeah, we could disagree on that. Yeah. After listening, head on over to glossahouse.com. There you'll find all kinds of Bible, language, and theology resources. Glossahouse has a stock of audio, video, apps, digital, and print resources to meet your teaching and learning needs. Best of all, everything is innovative, accessible, and affordable. Glossahouse language resources for the global community. Uh, We are discussing Galatians 3. We just finished talking about verse 23. And so in this, uh, on this side of the episode, we're going to talk about 24 and 25. Um, And I'll just begin with reading though, reading 24. And then you want me to read 25 as well? Or do you want me to? Yeah, let's do them. Yeah, let's do them all. All right. Um, so I'll read 24 and 25. So if you have a Greek testaments and want to read along, here we go. Oste o nomos pedagogos emon yegonen is Christon ina ekpisteos de keothomen. Euthuses de tes pisteos uketi ypo pedagogon esmen. So hoste or oste in verse 24 is introducing a subordinate clause. It doesn't always. Sometimes you'll find it with an imperative verb. This time it's working with gegonen, uh, yegonen, which means means, uh, become. And I think it is, uh, osta can work with the infinitive as a result clause. It can also work with the indicative as a result clause in fact like in actuality. 
So there's a slight difference and it has to do with the vividness of the infinitive, um, the, the indicative versus the infinitive. When you, when you upscale an infinitive to a present tense, if you have that option or, or to a indicative mood, I should say, the indicative mood is a, is more vivid in its, in its presentation than an infinitive would be. So this is one of those where you have a, you know, a construction option, OSTA with the infinitive versus OSTA with the indicative. And the indicative means result in fact versus simply a result. So this is a result clause. This is the effect that comes out of verse 23. Uh, we were um, We were being held so that, in fact, the law has become our pedagogue in, into Christ in order that we would be justified by faith or from the faith. Verse 25, moreover, the faith having come, after faith having come, we are no longer under the pedagogue i.e. the law. Yeah. So that's how I would interpret that. Uh, Michael, could you explain more about the pedagogue? <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I assume you're talking about just how uh, in a lot of families, um, uh, uh, especially in a Roman, Greco-Roman context, right? A pedagogue would, would essentially be an educator for the child, I've even like seen where they walk the uh, child to and fro from different places, but they're kind of the yeah. child's overseer and um, have a lot of, take on really a lot of what we would today consider parental duties. Parental and <laughs> um, educational combined, right? And yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so you can think of it like a tutor uh, yeah. maybe is a good yeah. analogy uh, yeah. in our own context. Or if you're familiar with the homeschool movement, uh, this this idea of a co-op, a homeschool co-op, where you have different parents yeah. uh, assuming the parental and educational role of children in the co-op on certain yeah. days, like they kind of they become yeah. So it's kind of interesting, but tutor I, don't think I guess it's strong is a enough though, analogy, right? I mean, because pedagogue really is a guardian. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's probably a little better, but then. Guardian doesn't carry the sense of the education, so it's kind of we're kind of stuck between yeah. you know, one or the other, and it really is both. You know, like someone really indebted to do this, like a slave person, um, yeah, who watches over. This is where I remind everybody that slaves in the ancient world were also often the most literate yeah. people in society, right? Or the the wealthy. Uh, it was it was a sign of status, actually, in antiquity, to not be able to read or write. Why? Because you could then hire a slave like this to do your reading and writing for you, which emphasized your status because you had slaves to do that for you. Uh, so, whereas in our society we we associate status with degrees and literacy, the ability to read and write, uh, not so in the ancient world. It was quite the opposite. Mm. Yeah. I do think I think that can be overstated, though. I mean, Augustus worked on his own autobiography and speech that he gave. You know, so I I think that could be overstated, but I think 
I think having a slave do some of these kind of menial things for you, I think that's more the point, not that you couldn't do them yourself. Yeah, I'm not saying you yeah. couldn't do them yourselves, but I'm saying it didn't have the the level of status yeah. accorded to it yeah. that it does in our yeah. society to Agreed. be literate. Agreed. Yeah, that's, that's my yeah, point. Yeah, so 24 then, Paul is making a meta- is is using a metaphor. The law is like a guardian tutor. And and mm-hmm. in fact, verse 24, so that in fact we the law has become our tutor, our guardian tutor into Christ, is Christon, into Christ. So Christ is the goal. Uh, Christ-likeness mm-hmm. is the goal. So is, I would say, is marking a purpose, kind of the goal of the pedagogical uh, enterprise of which the law is, is functioning. The law, you know, Christ is the yeah. end of the law. Is how Paul says it in Romans, was it 10.4? Well, you could say fulfillment of the law. And and, uh, how could we work that out? Well, the king, the ideal king, we talked about how important the law was. The ideal king uh, is a law to themselves. Uh, This is like Aristotelian kingship theory. The law in ancient Israel was to take for himself a copy of the law, like to make for himself a copy of the law. I think if you go to Deuteronomy, I think it's 17. That's what the king was supposed to do, was to make a copy of the law for himself. In the ancient kingship understanding, law and king were together. And so here, mm. uh, the law is is instructing. Paul Paul changes that a little bit, but, but says that, the Christ is the end goal of the law, uh, embodying the law uh, perfectly, and the one to whom we give our allegiance. Yeah. This is another reason I think we can't poo-poo the law, because yeah. if Christ fulfilled the law and embodied yeah. the law perfectly, then why are we always beating yeah. up on the yeah. law? <laughs> yeah. Like, yeah, no, the law, it, it has it's part of Scripture, right? It's under the umbrella of Scripture. And it, it lays out a covenantal, you know, understanding of behavior and, but also included yeah. in that law are provisions for sacrifices, which, you know, presumes uh, problems, you know, failures. So mm. that's part of the system that was built. Yeah. So that was all part of God's instruction to us, uh, but it was to lead us to Christ. Yeah. Faith has now come. The faith has come and that faith is embodied in Jesus. Yeah. In order that we'd be justified by faith. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a Mm. temporal sequence here. And I think, you know, as Michael has done, he's kind of illustrated. I think if you wanted to do something like an exercise would be to kind of map out the flow of what happens before what and, and what happens after what, and kind of just chart that out. And, and so you, you see this, this story. There is, in fact, a narrative substructure to Paul's thought. He's, uh, mm-hmm. And this is important to him. And so, you know, we, as we approach Scripture, need to understand that, that there is an unfolding revelation. Uh, in verse 23, talks about the, the, the faith that was about to be revealed. 
Um, this was a climactic moment in, in, in salvation history, this revelation of the faith of which Christ embodies as our king, as our Messiah. Yeah. Ergo, mm. um, moreover, Paul says 25, we're no longer under the pedagogue. Yeah. So is Paul yeah. dignifying the law, do you think? That's a brilliant metaphor, isn't it? He's dignifying it, but then also saying we're no longer under it. Yeah, yeah I mean, there there comes a time when the student yeah. leaves the tutor, right? And I, I think that's the analogy here, that the tutor served its purpose. It did what it was supposed to. It, it got the student to the point where they could function, you know, I don't want to say on their own, but in this case, the analogy is we were talked about in the previous episode is with the indwelling of the Holy spirit within us, we are able to uh, function on our own. Now we're still going to be under a law. Like we never, ever completely get out from under a law. Again, Paul and Galatians six would tell us we're still under the law of Christ, but uh, that looks differently. The law looks differently once it hits its climactic point in Christ, because we have the giving of the Holy Spirit who is then writing the law yep. of God on our hearts. And this is, this is, it. this is why I just tip my hat here to our Wesleyan roots. This is precisely a big part of the reason why I am a Wesleyan, why I am Nazarene, right? Um, uh, because, we are we are a movement of grace, but we're also uh, we are a movement that has always given credence to motive and conscience, right? And we've always said that uh, we've always emphasized yeah. how important transformation, right? Um, so transformation and, of the heart by the power of the Holy Spirit for holy love, yeah, love yeah. that proceeds from uh, yeah. holiness. That is not just imputed, but imparted, meaning that it's not just a yeah. forensic uh, decree, as important as that is. But, yes, exactly. But we're actually exactly. made different. Like we're we're conformed. We're, we're transformed. We're we're made to be different people, and that that's a that's a it's a bit of a process. Uh, honestly, it's a, there's a lot of confession with that. And it's not an easy thing. I think, um, you know, in my my life, you know, before I came to Christ, I was probably sinning for 18 years. And then after that, I was still subjected to different kinds of things. That's a lot of years to, to repent of, honestly. And so as I get older, mm-hmm. I just say, you know, I have, I'm more aware of the temptations and shortcomings, you know. And, um, but we confess those. And then he forgives us and he purifies us, right? And First John talks about if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And this is, man, this gives glory to God. When this starts to happen in a person's life, man, mm-hmm. they're humbled and God gets the glory. It's God's grace that allows this to take place and it leads to um, a different kind of life in this world. Yeah, not easier necessarily, because you have to say no to temptations and say yes to people who are needy at times. And, and um, you know, they deserve love. 
Uh, they require our love. Um, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes love is hard. I mean, it's truth telling love, you know, it's not just going along, you know, to be nice to everybody, but no, it means sometimes you speak the truth and, uh, can be a little bit rough, but, um, yeah. So as, yeah, I agree with you, Wesleyan yeah. theology. I mean, I'm dedicated to scripture. It just so happens that I believe Wesleyan theology best, uh, describes that what we find in scripture. Yeah. So love the spirit of but I, I think our tradition, our Wesleyan tradition has has done just a wonderful job of of capturing yeah. So it's it's not an indebtedness to uh like Wesleyanism or you know the Church of Nazarene or any you know anything like that. Um scripture precedes tradition, but uh yeah, certainly grateful for how this tradition thinks about and and describes uh those sorts of things and uh the emphasis that we've you know I was getting at placed on yeah love and even this motive like motive and conscience rather than sort of like just rote legalism or anything like you know something like that um yeah I think I think all that yeah, it's very, a uh, very we, we've we've been a how should I say it uh, a a generous tradition, <laughs> um, in, in that regard, and n- not legalistic, heart oriented, as you were getting at. But it's unfortunately, unfortunately, some parts of our tra- our tradition have gone off the deep end, and that's sad, you know. So, yeah. Oh yeah. So the combine the truth with love is important. Yeah. It's a broader cultural phenomenon to confuse what love is. Of course, there's all kinds of songs about that. And what is truth? I mean, we're in a kind of a cultural phase right now where there's really just no certainty, you know, fake news, you know, we all are aware of that, selective telling of news ignoring of other news i mean it's just it's it's the spin is just awful it's just awful and it's it's like every area of life there's untruthfulness in our products you know like we bought whipping cream cream like look at the ingredients we just want the cream not you know 10 other ingredients we just want you know like you can't even just get pure food like it's there's all this garbage that's thrown in is corn syrup here corn syrup there that's killing us you know like even our food substances it's like a battle of truthfulness of like what is really in here why why is that needed to be in there what is this going to do to our our bodies you know and um just a disconnectedness uh, a lack of groundedness i think that's an issue of truth and uh, love (laughs) you know what why are why are these things done it's for the dollar. You know, so much is motivated by making money and often at people's expenses. So, mm, so we're warring, you know, against this, these kinds of things in our culture. So that's, it's even more important that the church be embodying this truth and embodying the love of Christ together. You know, well, anything else in these verses? Do you have a parting shot for us? If not, yeah, I, I do have a parting shot. Uh, I had a couple here. I'm just trying to decide uh, which one. But uh, 
This one, I'm just going to read this. It says, one reason, oh, well, I'm, I'm picking up in the, uh, picking up in, a, in the middle of a paragraph here, but um, the Wesleyan tradition, I'm just going to pick up later in the verse. The Wesleyan tradition is by its very nature already generous toward groups with differing ideas and practices. This is because it's a heart-oriented tradition that focuses primarily on our intentions and character. It's not that the Wesleyan tradition is unconcerned with ideas or has no interest in the pursuit of knowledge. It's only that its focus on virtue and pure intentions make those concerns a second or even third order mm. of business. Um, John Wesley, like most great thinkers, has left us with several memorable statements that capture the key values of this tradition, of his tradition. One such statement was that if your heart is as my heart, then put your hand in my hand mm. or put hand, then put your hand in mine. So, um, anyways, this comes from uh, Kenneth Skank. I think that's how you say his Shank. name. I'm not exactly sure. Oh, Wesley. Yeah, yeah Shank. Sorry. Um, yeah, Wesleyan scholar, and he's he's kind of capturing what I was attempting to get at there. But, um, yeah. Well, thanks for your insights on this episode, Fred, and thanks to everybody for listening. Uh, we hope this has been thought-provoking and helpful, and we hope you'll listen in. Let us know if you have any thoughts, comments, or questions. We'd be glad to interact. Um, Fred, anything else? Well, just that else? Ken's last name means gift. Yeah, Schenk. Yeah. Oh. Yeah, yeah. And, German. And what language? Yeah, gift. German. Well, uh, um, yeah, right. thanks, Michael. Always well, fun. I, I'm energized. I, I really enjoy doing these. Um, ah. I would like to do this a lot more, actually, just a lot more working through the text and pulling it apart. Uh, I just don't know if I want to type all it out. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> takes you know takes some endurance. But yeah, to <laughs> to kind of look at the I love looking at the information structure, the tenses, these subordinate clauses, different devices to bring things into prominence. Yeah, it's uh, it's there in the text. I mean, Paul mm. is writing these things out very carefully. This is inspired writ for our benefit. So thanks everyone for listening and uh, take care. Yep.